Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Amen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so if you're visiting this morning and I uh, just want to welcome you, if you're online or in person, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Waterbrook. I'm the pastor for student and young adult ministries. Uh, our lead pastor, Kevin, as we've been saying, uh, if you don't know, is on sabbatical right now. So him and his wife are over in the UK enjoying rest. And so uh, Pastor Gabe and myself have the opportunity to share God's word uh, with each and every one of you for the next several weeks here. So uh, we're thankful. We're excited. I'm always honored to be able to open up the Holy Scriptures for the people of God. Um, a few years ago, uh, 2015, I think, before I moved back from Florida, to Minnesota, I read this. So I grew up in Minnesota, and, and I lived in Florida for a while. And the cultures between Minnesota and Florida are, are totally different. Um, so I read this book as I was preparing to move back up to Minnesota called uh, Minnesota Nice, with a question mark. And it said, A Transplant's Guide to Surviving and Thriving in Minnesota. Uh, apparently, Minnesota is a really difficult place to move into. Um, if, you're, if you're not from here, you get what I'm saying. If you're from here, you're like, what are you talking about? It's great. Uh, now, one of the reasons it's difficult is because Minnesotans, for whatever reason, uh, we don't like to um, say hard truths directly. We have a tendency to kind of beat around the bush a little bit, soften it. And so if you're not from here and you're typically a straight shooter, you think everyone's happy-go-lucky all the time when really they're like boiling inside and they just won't tell you. <laughs> Y'all can resonate with that. <laughs> so today, this... This word from Jesus might be a little abrasive to some of us Minnesotans. He's really clear with us. He's really direct with us. But I want to remind you, before we even say another word, Jesus loves us deeply. A clear word is not a harsh word if it's coming from a place of love. And so let's pray that God will give us the grace to hear what he has to say today. Father, we thank you that you don't beat around the bush that your warnings to us are full of love. And so I do pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive this word, that we would see it as grace and respond according to your will. Jesus, our only hope is that you'd be exalted. So come, Holy Spirit, fill us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to start by asking uh, just a couple questions to kind of get us thinking a little bit. Um, when you think of the future, what emotions well up in you? There could be a lot of different ones, right? Anxiety is probably towards the top of that list for some of us. Uncertainty for others. Confusion, maybe. Maybe some of us are so out of touch with our emotions we don't even know where to begin with that question. That's okay. 
perhaps there's a mixture of emotions. Uh, there's an unknown mixed with hope, mixed with fear, mixed with excitement, enthusiasm. We're kind of just all over the place when we think about the future. The emotions well up in us. Here's another question. When you think about the future, what, what floods your imagination? What pictures come into your mind? Here's the final question. When you think of the future, the emotions, the imaginations, your dreams, aspirations, hopes, etc., what role does God play in it? Where's he in the picture? You see, what we truly believe about the future has a direct impact on our lives today. Last week, we ended with Jesus telling us really bluntly, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we put our hope in will direct everything about us, Jesus says. Today, Jesus is telling the disciples and us that our hope must be anchored in the reality that he is coming back one day. And he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to make all things new. Philip Ryken, he says this, he says, we know that Jesus must come again to consummate or to complete his saving work. How else can every wrong be righted and every evil brought to justice? How else can Satan be defeated and condemned to hell? How else can Jesus gather his people to himself? How else can he receive the honor that he alone deserves unless he comes again in power and glory? So Jesus is telling us today that he is returning at any moment and that our response to that shouldn't be to try and figure out all the details, right? We can get into all sorts of debates about the exact timing and the exact way and, you know, are you pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, post-millennial, all, all that details. Jesus is saying those details don't matter. What matters is that we live wisely and faithfully today in light of that great day. So in the text today, Jesus is going to tell us that we must live with kingdom resilience and kingdom responsibility, now I say kingdom resilience and responsibility because we all know that we can be resilient and responsible about 10,000 things, totally neglecting the kingdom of God, and in the end, it'll be of no use whatsoever. But we know that in the Lord, our labor is never in vain. So we can go all out for Jesus. So let's walk through these one at a time. Now I'm going to warn you before we, before we go down, we're kind of, uh, it's like we're going to be walking through a hallway and I'm going to crack open some doors as we go. I'm not going to explore it too much. And so there's going to be a lot coming this morning. And so I just want to invite uh, further discussion if you have questions about any of the doors that we open but don't explore too deeply, okay? So if you have questions or comments or you want to pray about anything after this, uh, let's continue to talk about it, all right? So let's go. Number one, living with kingdom resilience. Look with me at verses 35 through 40. Jesus tells us, he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their masters to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
So Jesus tells us here that he's coming back at a time we won't expect. And, and when that happens, there's only going to be two kinds of people. Those who are ready and those who aren't. Those who stay dressed for action and keep their lamps burning. And those who put on their pajamas, turn the lights out, and are lulled into a spiritual slumber. The words stay and keep in verse 35 tell us something about the nature of living for Jesus while we wait for his return. He's saying that we must persevere. We must press on. In other words, following Jesus isn't a fad. He's really not all that interested in getting people to pray a prayer at one point in time and then leaving to, to live their lives however they want. You know, some of us maybe just need to ask ourselves right now, have I lost my zeal for Jesus? Has my zeal for Jesus waned? Have I been devastated by disappointment and sort of turned cold towards him? Have I slowly but surely, maybe even unintentionally, started to embrace the treasures of this world rather than the kingdom of God? Have I gotten comfy here? Have I sought after ease rather than missional impact? Look, if you're a Christian, you know what this is like. There's nothing more that we want for our own lives than to go out for Jesus. No real Christian wants anything other than that. We long for our lives to be meaningful. We long to live for Jesus. We long to not lose our zeal. No real Christian wants to lose zeal and settle in and fall in love with this world. So Jesus isn't telling us something we don't know already, is he? No, Jesus is looking us in the face. He knows the longings of our hearts to live for them, for him. And he's fully aware of all the forces in us and around us that seek to lull us to sleep. He knows that we live in a world designed to distract us from him. And so Jesus isn't saying that we simply need to agree with him. He's saying that what we need is kingdom resilience. Here's how uh, Todd Bolsinger defines resilience in his book, Tempered Resilience. He says, resilience is about the capacity to remain steadfastly committed to wisely discerned goals and values when the forces in front of us and around us would seek to compromise both. And we become stronger through the challenge. So Jesus uh, is inviting us right now to consider the difficulties, the distractions, and even the sin that we're struggling with right now. He's inviting us to, to look at it for what it is and begin to wonder what God might be doing in us and through us because of those things and how we can grow as a result of the hardships, the difficulties, the distractions that we're suffering as we're waiting for his return. So when I was younger... I don't know, maybe uh, 15, 17 years ago, I, <laughs> I actually used to be an amateur boxer. Um, now, to be honest, I was uh, okay at best. I did not have a winning record. Uh, so uh, last year when Chelsea and I were, were moving from one home to another, and we were unpacking some boxes, uh, I came across a box that had some old sports memorabilia and trophies and, and stuff like that, and, and I came across uh, in that box this, this piece of paper right here. Uh, now, this piece of paper is from a Minnesota boxing amateur website that, uh, you know, they used to record all the, the fights on the weekends, you know, who won, who lost, where the fights were, etc. And my dad had found this after a fight that I had fought in and, and lost, and he, he printed it out, and he highlighted the section that covered my fight. 
and it says uh, 112 pounders, Max Clifford from ACR, that's the gym, fought St. Cloud John Hall. This was an okay fight. <laughs> With John Hall down in the third round and then having a standing eight count. Max Clifford winning by decision. In other words, uh, I got hammered that fight. <laughs> I remember like it was yesterday too. I remember that third round um, getting knocked down and everything in me just wanted to stay down. You know that feeling, right? Everything in me just wanted to stay on my knee to just call it. There was no way I was going to win the fight from the first bell to the last bell. I was outmatched, outboxed. He was a better fighter. But I had this coach, right, who just drilled it into us. We never give up in the third round. We never stop. We never quit in the third round. I don't care how much you're being beat up. I don't care how outmatched you are. I don't care how behind on the card you are. We never give up on the third round. And so that's ringing in my head as I'm wanting to just call it quits, right? But he, so I had a coach who was encouraging me to press on even when it's difficult. But, but what's really amazing, I think, is this might sound harsh at first, but I'm so thankful for it. On this piece of paper, there's a note in the top right corner here. I don't know if you can see it, but it's from my dad. And he says this. He says, don't let this happen again. Work hard, sport. Love, dad. Um, can I just tell you how thankful I am to have had a coach and a father who taught me that resilience is better than giving up? That when things are hard and challenging and difficult, it's better to face it head on and to learn to grow from it, to, to by God's grace, get stronger from it, to press on rather than try to avoid difficult things, rather than quitting early, rather than calling. I am so thankful to have mentors in my life who say, keep going, John. I believe in you. You can learn from this. This isn't the end of the story. Keep going. Waterbrook, Jesus is looking at us today and he's addressing us today and he's saying, I know it's hard. Stay dressed for action. I know you're struggling. Keep your lamps burning. I know you're tempted to give up, but I'll never give up on you. So in this paragraph here, we're going to look at four ways that Jesus encourages us to develop kingdom resilience. Now, we're going to go pretty quick through these, so uh, let's just let's take it one at a time here, right? Uh, the first one Jesus gives us is to remember ultimate reality, to don't get distracted from what truly matters. Look at verse 36. It says, And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knock. Blaise Pascal, he once said, uh, he said, man's sensitivity, sensitivity to little things and insensitivity to the greatest things are marks of a strange disorder. So studying this text over the last week has been so helpful and so convicting in my life for so many reasons. One of the greatest temptations I personally face is to become so hyper-focused on the day-to-day -day needs that I functionally lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming back one day. I get so narrowed in on what needs to be done now, 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 that I forget that Christ is returning. Like if you were to look at my life for a week and just watch, uh, I hope you would see a man who loves Jesus and his wife, uh, who loves the church imperfectly for sure, but genuinely. A man who's doing the, the best I can with what I got. But I'm sure you'd also see someone who seems a bit frantic about deadlines. Uh, who's more concerned with the return of the school year than the return of the king. Jesus is saying to us, 
don't lose sight of ultimate reality. Don't lose sight of the big picture. He's, saying, he's, he's not saying that deadlines and whatnot don't matter. He's just saying that, that we need to view all of that in light of the greater reality. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he once said, he said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Waterbrook, Jesus is coming back. Eternity is real. Kingdom resilience means that we will be laser-focused on the day when Jesus returns so that we may be like those who are ready to open the door when their master arrives. So developing resilience means that we must keep the main thing, the main thing. The second component to resilience in this text is to develop personal convictions. Personal convictions. Now, in the English Standard Version, the ESV uh, that we use here at Waterbrook, we don't see this clearly, but Leon Morris, he's a, he's a scholar, he pointed out that the beginning of verse 36 could be translated like this. You yourselves be like men and women who are waiting. In other words, no matter what anyone else is doing or saying, you yourself stand firm. No matter what the culture says or say, is, uh, is saying, you yourselves be waiting. No matter what your husband, your wife, your kids, your parents, or your friends say, you yourself be ready. Listen, there was a time when our culture readily affirmed biblical Christianity. That's just not the case anymore. We have to accept that. We're not going to be embraced by everyone. What we believe to be true is not going to be celebrated in the culture anymore, and we have to be okay with that. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Jesus wants to be arrogant and rude towards those who don't follow Jesus, that we're, we're brash and unloving. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is at the end of the day, we live before God and not man. That there's a greater goal and ambition in life than receiving the applause and accolades from others. Resilience requires conviction. A strong resolve that at the end of the day, our greatest ambition and joy is to live for Jesus and not the approval of man. Let's be honest for a second. (laughs) If you're here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian, you probably think we're all crazy. I mean, we actually believe that Jesus of Nazareth, a man who left heaven and came to earth 2,000 years ago, is one day going to crack the sky, descend from heaven, and reign and rule on earth forever. That sounds crazy if you're not a Christian. You know what? You can think you're crazy. All, we, you can think we're crazy all you want. That's okay. We know who we believe. We know that Jesus conquered sin and death. He rose from the dead. He is alive and reigning and returning, and he is going to make all things new. And we get to stand firm in that Waterbrook Church. We get to stand firm no matter how crazy we sound, no matter how weird we look. We get to stand firm in who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he's going to do. We can be men and women of conviction. Conviction no matter what the world says. We won't ever grow in spiritual maturity if we spend all our efforts seeking the approval of man. We just won't. We won't ever be resilient if we don't have a backbone and and crumble at every opinion that people have of us. So Jesus is encouraging us to be women and men of conviction, loving and firm conviction. You yourself be ready. The third component of kingdom resilience is uh, to keep your eyes on the prize. (laughs) Look at verse 37 and 38. Jesus says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and will come and serve them. 
If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The word blessed is, is tapping into the reality of un- unending joy. We get glimpses of this, but it always fades, doesn't it? Jesus is saying that when he returns, there will be unending joy, fullness of joy, no more hindrances, no more sorrow, not even a faint memory of the things that killed our joy. Now, some of us are a bit stoic. (laughs) We get a little suspicious of happiness, right? And uh, maybe we have this attitude of, I'm just going to grind it out because it's right and it's true, and, and not because there's some kind of reward. Fair enough. The author of Hebrews, though, actually says that genuine and true faith is a kind of faith that is gripped by the fact that God rewards those who seek him diligently. Friends, we can just put all our hopes in being happy forever in Christ. We can go all in on this. We can keep our eyes on the prize. It'll be so worth it in the end. The scriptures aren't at all ashamed to give us these kinds of promises. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says that in the presence of Jesus, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But isn't it easy to settle for, for a lesser prize? Isn't it simple and easy and tempting to seek our joy and happiness as things, things that can't ultimately satisfy? I mean, we think that landing the dream job will satisfy our hearts. Getting the perfect boyfriend or girlfriend, getting married, having kids, making lots of money, becoming a social media influencer, changing our pronouns. We, we spend our days and direct our hopes towards all these things, and in the end we realize we're still just as empty, still longing, still unsatisfied, and we realize we're meant for more. Jesus is telling us to keep our eyes on the prize. He alone can satisfy our hearts. He alone gives joy unending and pleasures forevermore, and he offers it all freely. I mean, this is amazing. Jesus says in this passage that when he returns, the tables are going to be flipped. He he himself is going to dress like a servant and serve us kind of love is that this is who jesus is he didn't come to be served like some needy and vindictive god he he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many jesus isn't returning in a grumpy mood towards those who trust in him he delights to serve his people he loves to bring us into his joy waterbrook in christ you are far more loved and far more delighted than you could ever realize Just think about this for a moment. The eternal plan of God from before the foundations of the world was that he himself would go to unspeakable length and and great cost to himself to bring hell-deserving rebels like me and you out of a state of condemnation. Like Bruce was saying, we deserve the the F. (laughs) And not just put us into a neutral zone, but rather to lavish all his love, all his grace, and all his mercy upon us forever that we might be eternally happy with him. That's the eternal plan of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Friends, all the suffering, the hardships, the difficulties in the path of trusting and waiting for Jesus will be so worth it in the end. We have more hope than we could imagine. To grow in kingdom resilience, we need to know that all of the sacrifices we make will be so worth it in the end the last encouragement that Jesus gives us to grow in resilience is to remain diligent each day. 
In verse 30, uh, 39 and 40, Jesus switches up the parable a bit to make a point that we must live with daily diligence. He says this. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Uh, have you ever had your house or car broken into or something along those lines? It's like the worst thing ever. Uh, I know when, I remember when I was growing up, I had a so-called friend of mine uh, break into the house I was staying at. Um, kind of tells you the kind of folks I used to run with, right? Praise God for his grace. Um, you know, so he, he broke into my house and he rummaged through all my stuff. He broke into my safe. It was clear that like my closet and my dresser drawers were all rummaged through. And, and coming home was like the most gut-wrenching, heart-sinking reality ever. Like you ste- I step into my home and immediately I realize, oh man, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I felt like vulnerable. Like all my stuff was just in the open for someone to rummage through. I felt exposed, nothing was hidden, and I felt utterly helpless, because I wasn't ready. I wasn't preparing for that one. I didn't plan on that one. I was away from my house, I was doing my own thing. I did not think that someone was gonna come and break into my home. Jesus is saying that for those of us who aren't ready for his return, it's gonna be a lot less like a party and a lot more like a thief coming going to expose the true nature of our hearts and on that day we're going to feel so vulnerable on that day when we feel so helpless it'll be too late to make any changes it'll be too late to get right with God it'll be too late to repent of our sin Jesus is saying that he can return at any moment which means that every day we must be ready One of the greatest lies that we can convince ourselves is that at some later point in time, we'll get right with Jesus. I mean, we we hear this all the time. We do this all the time, don't we? How many of us have or know someone who, when they went away to college, they they either thought it actually or just subconsciously, I'm going to kind of put this whole Jesus thing on the shelf for a few years so I can really experience the college life. Or uh, the business woman or the businessman who says, one more shady deal and then I'll start living for Jesus. Or the, the young person who thinks, I have my whole life ahead of me. I'll follow Jesus later. We hear this all the time, right? There, there's always going to be an excuse to hold on to the treasures of our hearts rather than surrendering it all to Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that what we need to do is like white-knuckle it and put on some religious hypocrisy of, of a mask and pretend that we're following Jesus and, and all that. What I'm saying is that we need to get open and honest with Jesus now. Uh, we, we, we need to plead with Jesus that he would search us and know us and see if there's any way within us that is unpleasing to him, that we would... We would we would, be, we would get honest with ourselves and really think, man, what am I actually living for? What's really going on in my heart? What are the true treasures of my heart? And then plead with Jesus. Give me a desire for you. Give me the grace to follow you. Give me the desire to love you. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Expose me that I might turn from it and trust in you again. I want to be ready daily. And you know what we're going to find out? 
is that living for Christ each and every day isn't a burden. There's no greater joy or greater blessing than living with a deep sense of assurance that you're fully known and completely loved by Jesus. So Jesus tells us that we, we must be ready, we must be resilient, and we grow in resilience by keeping the main thing the main thing, by developing personal convictions. We remember that the payoff is greater than we could fathom and to stay diligent every day. But not only do we live with kingdom resilience, but we must also live with kingdom responsibility. And we'll move quickly here. Look with me here at verse 41 through 44. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household and, and give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now this is amazing, and to be honest, I don't know if I'd believe it if the scriptures didn't say it. Jesus says here that God has placed his people into positions of management over his property. Notice the word manager. It's, it's the word that we get the, the idea of stewardship from. It describes a reality of delegated responsibility. For some reason, Jesus has entrusted to you and me immense responsibility. Now you might be saying to yourself, what in the world has he entrusted me with? I'm just a nobody. All of us, whether you're a Christian or not, have been created in the image of God, which means that you have inherent value, inherent dignity, you deserve honor and respect. You're not a mistake. God has created you purposefully. He planned to create you from before time began and loves you far more than you could ever imagine. None of us can say we're nobodies. And if you're a Christian, not only has God created you in his image, deserving of love, honor, respect, dignity, but he has redeemed you from being an orphan and brought you into his very own family. For now, we're daughters and sons of the king. Not only has he brought, brought us into his family, but he's indwelt us with his Holy Spirit. He's changed our hearts. He's gifted us that we might serve him and love one another all the days of our lives. And he's calling us to live with kingdom responsibility with what he's entrusted to us. Now, when we think of, of stewardship, we want to think of a few things, and, and I won't go into detail here, uh, but we want to ask the question, uh, with what has God entrusted to me? And to whom has he entrusted me to? So when we think about what God's entrusted us, we, we, we got to ask questions like, what resources has he entrusted to me? What abilities has God entrusted to me? What spiritual gifts, what God-given burdens do I have? Uh, what, is there a people group that God has put on my heart? Or what about your story? Have you ever thought of your life story as being entrusted to you from God? That none of the details of your life are an accident. That God is the author of your life and he has designed your life to bring your story into his story that you might be a blessing to others. He's called us to steward the stories that he's given us. Now what about who God has entrusted you to? Now one of the, the easiest things we can do 
in this internet age is be all riled up about everything everywhere else and totally miss the people in front of us. And so I just want to encourage us, before we get all riled up about the next YouTube video, let's make sure that we're caring for our own families well. Let's make sure that we're cultivating meaningful and loving relationships. Let's, let's seek to love our actual neighbors. God has entrusted us with where we live, with the families that we have, with the church community that he's brought us into. This is why we have a high view of covenant partnership here at Waterbrook. Right? Those of us who are covenant partners here have committed to loving and caring for one another. Real people in a real place. Worshiping together as a church really matters. Right? We're owning up to the responsibilities that God has entrusted to us as a church family. So we ask, what has God entrusted to us and to whom am I responsible? Now in this passage, Jesus gives us three very strong warnings against being irresponsible with what God has entrusted to us. And before we walk through these, I I want to, um, again, reiterate that Jesus is warning us because he has a deep love for us. Uh, The most unloving thing that he could do is actually not tell us of these dangers. And so he has some strong words for us that are meant to wake us up from our slumber, if it applies. So let's walk through these briefly. The first one the first warning that Jesus gives us is against oppressive and domineering leadership. Look with me at verse 45 and 46. Jesus says, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Let that sink in for a moment. Here's Jesus. Gentle, lowly Jesus. The most loving person who ever walked the face of earth. Saying that he will have no tolerance whatsoever for those who misuse and abuse their power. He says that he will rip them apart and throw them in hell. See, Jesus has entrusted certain folks with leading God's people in various ways. And God's will for his people is that we flourish. We grow in knowing and loving him. We grow in trusting him. That we're set free from the bondages of of legalism on one hand and lawlessness on the other. You see, life in the kingdom of God under the reign of God is freeing, not oppressive. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to set the captives free, not enslave us to more religious people's agendas again. Life in the kingdom is a life of love and joy and peace. And the oppressive leader in this parable is someone who has taken what God has entrusted to them and and misused and abused it. Now, there are a few ways that I want to apply this. Um, First off, I want to say, Uh, that I know there are a lot of folks here who um, have been under really destructive, oppressive, abusive leadership in the past. And you're just wrestling with deep wounds. And um, which means you probably have no trust for me or any of the pastors or elders or leaders here. And uh, that's okay. That is absolutely okay. Um... And what I want to say clearly, one of our high values here at Waterbrook Church 
is that we can actually, by God's grace, be a refuge for people who have tasted the dark side of American evangelicalism. I mean, we've heard story after story of abusive leadership, manipulative power, scandal after scandal. And so if you're coming in here this morning and it's just a miracle that you're even here, my goodness, that's enough. You just don't have to fill any role. You don't have to have a burden of serving anywhere or doing anything. Just spend some time with Jesus. Receive grace from Jesus, however long that takes. There is no time limit. You are safe to just come in here late and leave early. Just sit under grace. Get grace, no matter how long it takes. Now, the other way I want to apply this is simply asking the question to those of us who have been given responsibility over others in any kind of leadership role, be it in the church, as a parent, in the workplace, etc. Here's the question. In what ways have we become impatient with the pace of progress of those under our care and we've begun to grasp for control? Notice that in the parable, it's the man who gets impatient with how quickly Jesus is returning, who begins to grasp for control. Um, when we begin to do that, this is a clear sign that we've shifted from being stewards who are seeking to be conduits of the grace of Jesus to now we're more concerned about building our own kingdoms. And Jesus has no tolerance for that whatsoever. The second warning that Jesus gives us is in verse 47. I'm calling it lawless living. It says this, And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. This is a warning to those who have embraced the you-do-you attitude of the day. Uh, Those who hear a call to obedience and and, and we either shrug our shoulders or we we, we recoil and accuse everyone of being legalistic. Let me ask this question real quick. Uh, Is encouraging one another to obedience legalism? Well, it depends, right? If we're telling people that in order for God to love them, that they somehow have to impress God with their righteous deeds, then yes, that's legalism, that's false. That is a false gospel and has no place in here whatsoever. We won't ever communicate that message. But if if we see a brother or sister who's in sin, and we say something like, brother, sister, you know how much God loves you. Christ went to the cross to pay for that sin. Christ went to great lengths to bring you back into his family. You are forgiven and free. You no longer have to be enslaved to this sin. In fact, because you're a Christian, because you have the spirit of God in you, you'll always be miserable as long as you're living in sin. So Jesus is calling you into not a burden of following him, but the joy of following him. So, hey, I'm going to come and walk with you as we walk this out. Is that legalism? No way. That is loving gospel community. Now, here's another question. Is following Jesus like a buffet (laughs) where we get to pick and choose what we like and don't like? Do we say things like, I I like that he forgives me, but I don't like that he wants us to change and grow and become more like him? Do we say things like, I love that Jesus is loving, but I don't like his sexual ethic? You know, love is love, right? Or for us more religious types, do do we love these warnings that Jesus gives us, but hate that he calls us to befriend those and love those who don't embrace them? These are warnings for both the immoral and those who are moral for all the wrong reasons. God's will for us is that we love him. 
with everything in us, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves, even those who think we're crazy. There's a very real warning here uh, for those of us who hear God's word, who know God's word, and don't obey God's word. And we might not take that too seriously, but Jesus is telling us that there's coming a day, and it could be at any moment, he's going to return, and we'll be accountable for what we did with what we knew of his will for our lives. The third warning is what I'm calling blissful ignorance. This one's hard for a lot of us, and I get that. Verse 48 says this, But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. The dark cloud that hangs over all of humanity is that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, whether we know it or not. We live in a world that says that people are basically good and for the most part don't deserve punishment. The scriptures actually say the opposite. The scriptures say that humanity is basically bent on evil, that our inclinations aren't towards loving Jesus and and loving others. Our basic bent in life is towards ourselves. Uh, The last time Chelsea and I went to Mexico, um, we we met a couple of guys that were down there from from Canada, and they started telling us this story about how the night before they, they got in trouble with the police down there for breaking a law that they didn't even know that they broke. Um, Now, they framed it up in a way that the police was, you know, just looking for a bribe from a tourist. Um, Whether that's true or not is beside the point. The the point remains, these guys had no clue that they had broken a law. They were from Canada, and Canada has different laws than Mexico. But that didn't matter. They weren't under Canadian law, they were under Mexican law. None of us is under the law of our own preferences. Or even our own nations, ultimately, When Jesus returns, it will be clear that we are all under the law of God, and he is not unjust. He is truly just. Every evil deed will be exposed. Every evil thought will be examined. This should cause us to tremble. This should cause us to have urgency to tell everyone we know that Jesus is real, that we're in deep trouble unless we're made right with him, that there's coming a day when justice will be executed without exception. We need to live with the reality that Jesus is coming again, but not only with the reality that Jesus has come again. We must live with the reality that Jesus has come Jesus has come as the faithful servant. He has come as the one who always did the will of the Father. Jesus has come as the one who lived with true and perfect kingdom resilience. His fate was set towards the cross. He was mocked and he was scorned. He was misused and abused, but he never stopped. He never slowed down. He never wavered for one moment because he was set on seeking and saving the lost. Listen, on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath that you and I deserve. On that cross, Jesus took the beating that we would never have to. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I would never have to fear the God forsakenness that we deserve. You see, we are justified. We are saved. We are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, and not in our works. Can I get an amen? amen. You see, the gospel isn't for those who who actually think that we're the faithful and just servants. The gospel is good news for those of us who see these warnings and say, my God, I deserve wrath. I deserve punishment. But praise God that he did it all for me. 
The gospel is good news that Jesus is for brokenhearted failures like us. The gospel is good news that Jesus has invaded our lives and by his grace he's changing us. The gospel is good news that in him, I'm sorry, that it is him in us and through us who gives us resilience and makes us responsible for his glory and the good of those he has called us to. Waterbrook, let's believe this gospel. Let's believe this good news every day as we wait for his return. Let's remind one another every day that we can turn from our sin and trust in him again. Let's dare to believe that Jesus is coming again. And let's dare to believe that it's going to be a party worth getting in on. Waterbrook, by God's grace, we can live with resilience and responsibility until he comes again. Amen? All right, let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to trust and tremble at your word. Thank you for the gospel. Who of us can stand before your holiness? Praise be to God that you died for sinners like us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.